this passage and, and others like it have been used in ways that justify all sorts of violence and destruction. This is Chapter, Verse, and Season, a lectionary podcast from Gale Bible Study. Welcome back to another conversation about an upcoming text from the Revised Common Lectionary. Each week here, you listen in on a pair of professors from Yale Divinity School while they talk about what they found interesting about this passage. I'm your host, Helena Martin. In this episode, we have Joel Baden, professor of Hebrew Bible and director of the Center for Continuing Education, and Tisa Wanger, associate professor of American Religious History. They're discussing Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 through 21, which is appointed for the fifth Sunday in Lent in year C. The text is read for you by student Misty Kiwak-Jacobs. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 16 to 21. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild animals will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise. Tisa, this passage has in it one of the more wonderful sort of passages in the the second part of the book of Isaiah, the the don't remember the former things or consider the things of old. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Which is sort of the, you know, the, the key lines uh, traditionally in this section, you know, that God is going to bring forth something new on, on the earth. And, uh, uh, you know, as often the case, you know, this is interpreted in all sorts of ways, often, of course, to do with, you know, the Messiah. But when you and I were looking at this passage together, I think both of us were struck not by that part, but by the way that this passage depicts the wilderness as the a place that God is going to sort of, in a sense, overturn and, and change, and that is going to be uh, a place of sustenance for for his people, recognizing that this is sort of a classical biblical tradition, you know, the divine overturning of nature and also Israel in the wilderness, I think we both sort of took a second and thought, I think there, there are probably ways of reading this and ways that it's been read that aren't entirely wonderful. <laughs> is that fair? For sure, yeah. And I mean, it is it is a 
wonderfully evocative passage, right? I mean, speaking to the people of God, God's promise and covenant, and like you said, it can be and has been claimed by lots of different groups of people who feel themselves to be oppressed, right, in Babylon, in need of divine intervention. I'm about to do a new thing. I mean, I think I remember growing up so many sermons right on this on this passage. But, you know, what happens when we think about the trope of wilderness here? And what appears as wilderness to one group is home to another. And as a historian of American religion, you know, in my own scholarship, really, I think a lot about Native American history and settler colonial encounters. So the way that English Puritan settlers who really came to North America and a place that they called the New World, right, and saw themselves as God's chosen people, seeking out the promised land, fleeing a kind of oppression in what appeared to them as a wilderness. And they used this and so many other passages like it to legitimate violence towards indigenous people. They saw the land, you know, here in New England, where we're, we are in Connecticut, right, and in Massachusetts, as a wilderness at the time. But to the people who already lived here, of course, it wasn't a wilderness. It was landscapes that were very familiar and indigenous places and people were well-traveled and well-known and well cultivated. So I mean, I think of the the doctrine of discovery that is built in part on depictions of uncivilized wilderness. The trope of the wilderness is used in the doctrine of discovery, which is the ideology that European colonists used to legitimate their claims to the land, right? And the idea was, especially for English settlers, that cultivated land, agricultural practices, English-style homes and farms and farmsteads and fenced uh, agriculture was a way to lay claim to ownership of the land. And there's a kind of civilization on our side and a wilderness on the other side that um, this and many other passages end up being used in that way and to kind of legitimize English conquest and to depict Native people as heathens and savages who don't cultivate the land, even though we know that Native people did have, of course, agricultural practices that just looked quite different. Sure. I mean, as we as we think about the way that the passage reads, right, water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, right? Well, so you know, New World, quote unquote, wasn't a, a desert, but so what would the equivalent of sort of the overturning of the way that the landscape and nature looks be, as you say, it's, you know, the, the turning of forest into, into field. Uh, it's the, uh, the bringing of a different kind of landscape altogether, one that is, belongs to the, the entering, conquering people rather than uh, the, the native inhabitants. But what this passage does is not just, you know, sort of justify that sort of conquering behavior, but it makes it 
divinely ordained again part of a you know part of the, the divine plan we we may be the ones you know the white settlers may be the ones who are doing this to the land and 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 actually entering this quote unquote wilderness but it's god who is the one who is giving the water and giving the drink to my chosen people right that is there's a specific recipients right there's chosen people which always means there's unchosen people and the chosen people are the ones who are being sustained by this land now. And as it says at the end, so that they may declare my praise. And, and what that means is that the, the taking and the, uh, the changing of this, of this land becomes in itself an act of worship. This is giving glory to God, is doing this to, to, this, to this land. What we, you and I are seeing as, sort of as a very hostile act is justified as as worship as as a, a sort of physical form of uh, of prayer right this is this is honoring this is honoring the deity that's right and i think so much depends on who gets placed where in the story right and so thus says the lord your redeemer the holy one of israel for your sake i will send to babylon and break down all the bars and the shouting of the chaldeans will be turned to lamentation. So who's who's being freed here, right? And whose shouting is turned to lamentation? I think people can put themselves in the story in many different roles. Yeah, of course. One of the things that we talked about also when we were looking at this uh at this passage is the way that it appeals to sort of the the common trope of God overturning nature in some way, turning the wilderness into right rivers in the wilderness, or even the flood story does this with the God doing something that's sort of unnatural to nature, and that sounds abstractly not particularly problematic, but even in within the passage we have there's two changes to nature that happen. There's the one we've been looking at that is the wilderness being turned into rivers in the desert, but the passage begins with the reverse, which is God making a a path through water, right? So turning water into dry land. Again, an obvious appeal to the story of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea in, in the book of Exodus, but it doesn't just stop with what happens to the to the water, made a path through the sea, and then killed some folks, right? Destroyed chariots and horses and army and warrior, and they are extinguished. That overturning of nature, that is the one that's being used as the historical example of what this looked like, right? You know in the past, God has done this in nature. He's turned water into dry land and done so accompanied by mass death that we celebrate. I'm about to do something even wilder is what God is saying here, right? That's what I did in the past. Now I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do the reverse, right? I'm going to make water in the dry land. And doesn't say so, but simply by analogy, right? The, the potential for destruction of human life is there in this case as well. If you thought what happened in the past was pretty great, you, you're you going to love what I'm going to do next. And Biblically, we don't often put ourselves in the in this in the seats of of the Egyptians, say. 
But there's pretty good traditions, interpretive traditions, that remind us that they were people too, and that there is a loss of life there. Right. I spoke earlier about the Puritans in New England, but in the passage about the desert that you're pointing us to again, I'm reminded of kind of 19th century America when in the in the early part of kind of American Western expansion, the Western plains were referred to as the Great American Desert. And you can even find maps from the late 18th and early 19th century in which it's labeled the Great American Desert, right? And I think Western settlers thought of this passage, I will make a way in the wilderness rivers in the desert. The Mormon settlers in Utah talked about making the desert blossom as a rose. And they were thinking of this passage and and maybe others like it that, as you said, gave kind of divine sanction to their settlement and kind of a miraculous sense of of what they were doing in a providential sense of what they were doing in that settlement. But then in the verse 16 and 17, where God is bringing out the chariot and the horse, the army and the warrior, there is a violence here, right? But on whose behalf is the violence happening? And like the Exodus passage, this has also has spoken not only to settlers who were displacing Native people, but to people who were themselves, in fact, being oppressed. And, you know, who's, who is the Lord intervening on behalf of? Is the Lord uh, intervening to free slaves, for example, and overturn a kind of oppressive social order? It can be read in so many different ways. Right. I think, so. what, I think what you're pointing to, and it's important as we, as we end, is that it's the, the passage isn't inherently violent or problematic. It's simply that you and I know that this passage and, and others like it have been used and read in ways that, that justify all sorts of violence and destruction. But as you point out here, it need not be that way. You know, I think we simply wanted to point out that it's very easy to interpret it as justifying those kinds of conquest narratives. Um, and, and, yeah, that's, that's and, right. that, and that's something that's worth being aware of, especially, uh, especially those of us who, who live in America. That's right. Thanks for listening to Chapter, Verse, and Season. Visit YaleBibleStudy.org to find more Bible study resources, read the transcript from this episode, and find all of our past episodes. And follow us on Twitter, at BibleYale. Chapter, Verse, and Season is produced by Joel Baden, Kelly Morrissey, and me, Helena Martin. Aidan Stoddart is our editorial and production assistant. Our theme music is by Calvin Linderman. Thanks, as always, to the Center for Continuing Education at Yale Divinity School. And thank you, Professors Baden and Wenger, for your insights this week. We'll be back with another conversation from Chapter, Verse, and Season.